0: Good morning. You can hear me all right? Good to see so many of you this morning. Please open in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. The title of our sermon this morning is A Survey of the Beatitudes, A Survey of the Beatitudes. And let's read the first 13 verses, chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel. The heading over chapter 5 in my Bible is the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall. BE SATISFIED. BLESSED ARE THE MERCIFUL, FOR THEY SHALL RECEIVE MERCY. BLESSED ARE THE PURE IN HEART, FOR THEY SHALL SEE GOD. BLESSED ARE THE PEACEMAKERS, FOR THEY SHALL BE CALLED SONS OF GOD. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. Let me read that again. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then the first sentence in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A survey of the Beatitudes... I have been burdened for at least a decade and a half, a long time, uh, that Christians in our nation have not sufficiently taken to heart the Sermon on the Mount and especially the Beatitudes. So I pray that the Lord would speak to us this morning through the preaching of his word. The Beatitudes appear at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes, as we've just observed, are a list of those who are blessed, of those who are happy. By looking at the promises in each of the eight Beatitudes, we know that these Beatitudes describe those who are truly Christ's disciples. It's believers who receive the kingdom of heaven. It's believers who will inherit the earth. It is believers who receive mercy. It is believers who are the sons of God and the daughters of God. It's believers who will see God. Now, Jesus giving the sermon on this mountain is the equivalent in the New Testament of Moses giving the law on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. So it couldn't be more important for us to hear what he has to say. In both cases, on Mount Sinai and on this mountain, God gives his people the standards and the norms which would characterize them and distinguish them from all other people on the earth. So in the law we find the value system and the ethical standards of people living under divine rule in the old covenant age. And here in the Sermon on the Mount we find the value system and the ethical standards of people living under divine rule in the new covenant age. And while there is enormous continuity between the mountain from which Jesus spoke and Mount Sinai from which Moses spoke, there are also enormous differences. On this mountain, there are no boundaries or barriers set up at its base to keep people away from God's fearful holiness. It's not as if God is any less holy, but the one who is speaking these words will himself Make a way for sinful men to come into his holy presence. Instead, on this mountain, all may come up and be blessed. On this mountain, there's no blazing fire, no deep darkness, no earthquakes at which Moses himself shook with fear. Instead, we hear the voice of one who is gentle and lowly. On this mountain, there's no roar of thunder, no flashes of lightning, but instead we find an invitation to come, to come and find the blessedness of eternal life, to find everlasting contentment, everlasting joy, everlasting happiness, in the kingdom of God. Those blessings are for the weak. They are for the poor. They are for the empty, the destitute, and the rejected. They are promised a kingdom where they will enjoy a great and glorious reversal of fortunes. The promised blessings are not given to the exalted, to the highly esteemed, or to the greatly admired in the world. It is not the great and honorable in the world who are blessed in the end. No. Upon them fall the woes in the parallel passage in Luke 16, known as the Sermon on the Plain. They end up not blessed. They end up not happy. The promises here are for those who by the working of sovereign grace enter into the kingdom of God where more grace is poured upon them effectually producing in the fabric of their very beings the evidences of grace that we see in these eight beatitudes from the very moment we respond to his invitation to come, from the very moment we turn from our sin, from the very hour we first believe, God's transforming grace works from within to make us new people whose lives are characterized by these beatitudes. So John Stott says, the Beatitudes paint a comprehensive portrait of a Christian disciple. That bears repeating. These Beatitudes paint a comprehensive portrait of a Christian disciple. So the Beatitudes are are a portrait, a picture of those who are, in fact, the salt of the earth. And the Beatitudes are a gauge of that saltiness. The text says, if we lose our saltiness, we are no longer good for anything. Spurgeon was fond of saying, you can salt meat, but you can't salt salt. So let's quickly survey the beatitudes one by one. There are 8 of them. Number 1. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Christian is characterized the Christian is characterized by poverty of spirit. Matthew Henry said, "Poverty of spirit is a disposition of the soul wrought by grace by which we are emptied of self. Poverty of spirit is the opposite of being full of oneself. It's the opposite of a self-exalted or self-exalting spirit. It's the opposite of a proud spirit. To be poor in spirit is to be lowly in one's own eyes. It means to regard oneself as weak, as insignificant. History regards Paul as the greatest apostle. How did Paul regard himself? Paul regarded himself as the least of the apostles. In fact, He regarded himself as the least of all the saints. And he regarded his considerable accomplishments in the flesh as nothing, as less than nothing, if that were possible. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge that God alone is great. It is to be repulsed at any thoughts of self-greatness. What do we have that we have not been given? Oh, Bill, I've earned everything that I've had. I've worked for it. I've earned it. Who gave you the ability to earn or to work? What do we have that we've been not, not, not been given? To be poor in spirit is to abandon all self righteousness and all boastful self confidence to be poor in spirit is to feel every moment our profound weakness to be poor in spirit is to live with a broken and a contrite spirit which the lord will not despise it's to be bowed in our spirits mindful of how much mindful of how much we've been forgiven The Laodicean Christians in Revelation 3 had lost that deep sense of weakness and contrition. Their pride of wealth puffed them up before God and man. They gloried in the greatness of their successes. They felt they had need of nothing. But Christ upbraided them, telling them that despite their accomplishments, despite their wealth, despite how wonderful they may have felt about themselves, They were, in fact, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They had forgotten the very first beatitude. They had forgotten the very first of the Christian graces. They had forgotten that poverty of spirit or humility is the first grace and the foundation of all the other graces. Second, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We think blessed are the merry, but Jesus tells us blessed are the mourners. The second grace of the Holy Spirit works in the heart of his disciples the ability to grieve, the ability to mourn, the ability to lament. From the day we first believed, the Holy Spirit, who is sent into the world to convict of sin, worked within us a penitential mourning so that we began to see our sins. We began to see them for what they really are. And God gave us the ability to grieve and regret our sinfulness. We began to see the corruption in our very natures that even when we resolve not to sin, there arises within us more sin. And we grieve and and lament the corruption in our very natures and long for the day when we will be set free. Job, one of the most blameless men in the Old Testament. Job, one of the most blameless men in the Old Testament, saw his sin, and when he saw it, he grieved deeply and said, I despise myself. And repent in dust and ashes. How very strange indeed for Jesus to say happy are those who mourn or happy are those who are sad <laughs> or happy are those who despise themselves. How strange to our ears or how happy are those who find the grace to mourn with dust and ashes. But the wonderful irony is that as soon as God's grace enables us to weep at our sinfulness, we are on the road to happiness. As soon as God's grace enables us to grieve our sin, we are on the road to joy. (laughs) Because in those very moments, in those very moments, God's forgiveness begins to wash over us. And God's comfort begins to flood our souls and his joy begins to fill us as chains begin to fall away. Hallelujah. Blessed are those who mourn. Third, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. The word translated here meek is the same word tr- that's translated gentle in Matthew 11:29 where Jesus said, "Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. I am meek. I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus is gentle. He is meek, and meekness is always found in God's people throughout the Bible. We see meekness in Abraham, who without a murmur or a complaint allowed Lot to assert himself in self-interest and make the first choice of the best land. In meekness, Abraham trusted that God would provide for him in less than the best land. And he did. We see meekness in Moses, who refused to defend himself in the face of false accusations from the sons of Korah and even Miriam. In meekness, he left judgment to God, who did, in fact, vindicate him. Numbers 16. Pages are stuck together. <laughs> We see meekness in David, who showed respect to Saul and his office, even in the face of Saul's ongoing, unjust, and violent treatment of him. Saul was out to kill him. In meekness, David trusted God to execute justice and give him the kingdom in due time. We see meekness in Paul's letter to the Corinthians many of whom said untrue and unkind things about him before his, behind his back. Yet his attitude towards them was meek. I thank God for you. I rejoice in you. I always pray for you. Matthew Henry says, the meek are those who are gentle towards all men who can bear provocation without being inflamed by it, who are either silent or return a soft answer, and who can show their displeasure when there's occasion for it without being transported into any indecencies. They are the meek who are rarely and hardly provoked but quickly and easily pacified and who would rather forgive 20 injuries than revenge one. Number four, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This hunger and thirst for righteousness is is the craving the yearning, the ache to be right with God. It's to be able, it, it's the longing and the, the craving to, to be able to stand before God in righteousness and holiness and not in our sins. In short, it, it's a hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Justification. This is also the craving and the yearning and the ache to be free from the unrighteousness that so easily entangles us. Are you hungry for that this morning? it's It's a longing, an ache to be free from the sin that entangles us and steals our joy. It's a hunger and a thirst for the righteousness of sanctification. And this is also the craving and the yearning and the ache that power would not always be on the side of the oppressors. That unrighteous treatment of others would finally come to an end. It's a a hunger and a thirst for righteousness on earth, which is echoed every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Five, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Psalm 145, I love it in the King James, it says, the Lord is good to all. There's not a person on the face of this earth who the Lord has not been good to. The Lord is good to all. And his tender mercies are over all his works. His tender mercies are over all his works. God's tender mercies, brothers and sisters, aren't just feelings of pity. Feelings of pity are wonderful, but his tender mercies aren't just feelings of pity. His great mercy moved him to come to the earth. His great mercy moved him TO CARRY THAT CROSS UPON HIS SHOULDERS, UP THAT HILL, AND DIE FOR US. SO WHEN OUR TEXT SAYS, BLESSED ARE THE MERCIFUL, IT MEANS that, THAT CHRISTIAN MERCY IS LIKE CHRIST'S MERCY. IT'S MORE THAN PITY. IT'S PITY PLUS ACTION. THE PRIEST AND THE LEVITE WHO PASSED BY THE MAN BEATEN AND ROBBED ON THE ROAD MAY HAVE HAD PITY FOR HIM. But they were not merciful, like the good Samaritan, who went out of his way to help. I'm quite certain that James had this beatitude in this text. In fact, I'm quite sure James had the beatitudes very much on his heart in the entire book of James. When he said, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their, in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Christians don't just pity widows and orphans. they go to them in their affliction and tend to their needs. So Christians Christians are merciful people. Christians show mercy to people who are suffering physically. Christians show mercy to people who are suffering emotionally. Christians are people who show mercy to people who are suffering spiritually, who need the gospel. When we share the gospel with them, we are extending mercy in view of their suffering and Christians even show mercy to people who offend them and people who sin against them why because we offended god because we sinned against god and he showed us mercy if tender mercies are over all his works. May tender mercies be over all of ours. Six, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So undefiled religion is to show mercy, and undefiled religion is to keep oneself unstained by the world. That is to keep oneself pure in heart. The Pharisees were concerned about being pure in the sight of men. The essence of what this verse teaches us is that we are blessed and happy when we are pure in those places that God alone sees. Unlike the Pharisees, Christians work to maintain a heart purity because we know that that God sees our hearts. We, We know that he looks upon our hearts. And though we may be able to fool others like the Pharisees did, God will not be fooled. When we love some sin, when we cherish some iniquity in our heart, it does affect our relationship with him. Psalm 66, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. 1 John 3, 21, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, our relationship with him flows. We're full of faith and confidence if our heart is not condemning us. But if our hearts do condemn us, things don't return to normal until we flee to gospel grace and walk again in purity before him. Seven, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Again, I think James has the Beatitudes in view when he says wisdom from above is first of all pure. That's what we've just spoken of. Then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy. How many Beatitudes are in that verse? We see purity, we see gentleness, which is meekness. We see humility, being open to reason. We see mercy, and we see a peaceable spirit. Brothers and sisters, Christians are peaceable people. We are peaceable people. We are not looking for a fight. (laughs) We are peaceable people who look for opportunities to make peace. First Samuel 25 tells the story of Abigail. Abigail was married to Nabal. Nabal was a harsh and a rude and an unpeaceable man who behaved in a very belligerent, disrespectful, unpeaceable way towards David. Towards David who had treated him very well. And David was deeply offended. This was before he became the king. So he and 400 of his men strapped on their swords for a fight. But Abigail rushed to meet David and urged him to forgive the offense, 1 Samuel 25, 28. And she appealed to him in a skillful, compelling, and powerful way. David relented and said to her, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. She was a peacemaker. She was full of discretion. She was sowing peace making peace, and reaping a harvest of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, if we want to reap a harvest for Christ, and we do, don't you? If we want to reap a harvest from Christ, we must sow in peace. We must not be quick to argue, to quarrel, or to fight. We must not be combative, or aggressive, or antagonistic, or belligerent. Because a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Christians should be among the most peaceable people in the world. Eight. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward, your reward, your reward is great. Your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's a promise here, brothers and sisters, that we must understand, that we must believe that we must embrace in faith with all of our hearts, especially if persecutions against Christians increase. When we are reviled, when we are criticized in an abusive or angry or insulting manner, when we're censured, Condemned, attacked, or railed against, when we're ill treated or subjected to degrees of hostility, when people utter evil against us falsely on his account, on his account, we are blessed. We're blessed. Blessed. Are you kidding me? Nothing tends to make us more despondent or depressed. Nothing tends to make us angrier. Nothing tends to make us lose heart, like being reviled, like being persecuted, like being falsely accused. But here, here we see the extraordinary transforming power of God's grace. that in the face of terrible persecution, God grants to us an ability in the innermost man to rejoice. How can we do that? We do it by faith because we remember the promise of a greater reward in the kingdom of heaven for all those who've been persecuted, there is there is a greater reward. Well, I'm out of time. Brothers and sisters, these Beatitudes paint a portrait of what true Christian disciples look like. To the degree that the Beatitudes characterize our lives to the degree that the Beatitudes characterize our lives, to that same degree, we will be the salt of the earth. We will be the light of the world. I rejoice this morning. I thank God that by the working of his grace, this is a salty church. we're salty. Thank God. May we never lose our saltiness. Amen.